All right. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Nana Ministry. We're so glad that you're joining us tonight, and for many of you who are joining us later on in a recording watching on our YouTube channel. As always, um, we like to introduce our newish series. This is actually the ninth episode, right, Chriselle? Mm-hmm. It's the ninth episode um, in our mental health series on truth prescriptions. So we just want to welcome you all. And again, the ninth episode, part two of our previous episode. And my name is Dr. Katie Olson. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, one of your hosts, and I have my wonderful co-host, Chriselle Olasaran, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. Thank you for joining us. Yes. And just as a reminder, because we are mental health professionals, we just want to always remind you of the disclaimer that the intent of, these, of this series specifically um, is to provide a more biblical perspective to mental health concerns. And so if you have any mental health concerns, we encourage you to address those with the mental health professional. Yes. And if you're currently in any crisis or you may have an emergency, please do reach out to a doctor or 911 immediately. Or if you're having any thoughts of harm or suicidal thoughts, you can reach out to the number there listed on the screen, 1-800-273-TALK, so that you're able to reach out to someone who can help you in your time of need. Yes, and you'll recognize that only last week, typically we do every two weeks, but last week we had part one and we didn't want people to wait too long. And so this week we're doing part two on the title, The Fiction of Addiction. We're going to briefly review our truth prescription from last week, and then we'll just jump right in because, again, we've we had so much content that we want to make sure that we get through it all, and I'm excited. Michelle, are you excited? I'm always excited about talking about mental health, something in my blood. <laughs> yes, yeah, so mine too. Some more blood. So. <laughs> so what was our truth prescription for our last episode? Yes, our truth prescription was, number one, to reflect on the various addictions that we were that were mentioned in our episode, and to reflect on whether or not you may have an addiction. Number two, to reflect on the various lies, hence the title, The Fiction of Addiction, and to ask yourself, have you accepted any? Mm. And Crystal, how many lies have we covered thus far? Mm. If I'm correct, we've covered... Three? Yes, three of how many? Three of seven. So quite a bit still. So you might hold off on number two. You might just reflect on the first three and then see if any of additional four. But especially number one, because I think it'd be helpful, and we're going to, again, just jump right in, um, to quickly review some of the addictions. Because remember, what was the number one lie, the first lie? Um, I don't remember, but let me briefly look at my notes here. Do you remember it had to do with what exactly addiction is? Oh, that addictions are only drugs. Yes, I remember because when we did our icebreaker question, that's what I had initially brought up. Yes. All right. So it's not just drugs. What is it? Oh, there anything that can cause substantial harm and that you continue to have that. How do you say? you continue to have that pattern regardless of that substantial harm that it's causing. 
Yes. And remember we talked about how there's, yes, the substances, and then there's the behavioral addictions and those activities. And so here are some behavioral addictions. And we mentioned a couple. And it's fascinating because we posted the, the video, our episode, and um, we're looking at some of the comments, not on, the, on YouTube itself, on our Instagram page, and also post some things on Facebook. And I got so many comments on masturbation. And so many people shocked, quite shocked about the effects of masturbation and how it can impact our physical health and our mental health. Mm-hmm. So um, people were interested in that and, and a lot of questions. And I, I noticed and I really appreciate the sincerity of those questions because people were, were asking and asking who tell with personal questions. So mm-hmm. um, the fact that you're all open to reflecting on if you have an addiction and being honest about it, right? And making sure to, to correct that. Yeah. So is there anything else that you wanted to add quickly about behavioral addictions? No, not necessarily. I just want to, to remind everyone that the intent of this series is so we can talk about, you know, mental health topics that sometimes are not talked about and for you to reach out to us and have those questions. And so I'm so glad to hear, Katie, that regarding a very delicate and sensitive subject, that individuals felt open enough to reach out. Yes. And one thing, Crystal, that you and I were talking offline um, right after last week's episode mm-hmm. is we were talking about even how there could be an addiction to spiritual things. Mm-hmm. And then one of the things that I had forgotten about that I wanted to address just really quickly um, was addiction these days that I see very frequent. And it's the addiction to conspiracy theories. Mm. Right. That's something that's been around for a while. Uh, but so how have we seen it more prevalent these days? Well, let me just put the disclaimer out there. What I'm about to say is not to promote or go against. So I'm not sharing my personal views. However, yes, currently because of COVID and because of other things that are going on in our current country, that there are theories going around, oh, you know, this, that, etc. <laughs> I don't want to speak into those theories, but there are many of them. And sometimes they're, they're feeded through social media. Uh, sometimes they're feeded through our news, right? The, the daily news or the nighttime news that's going on. It's really hard. I mean, we're talking about truth prescriptions. It's very hard to know truly what is the truth. And so I think sometimes... People feed into that, oh, I want to know, I want to figure out, I want to figure this out, and they can get kind of caught up and addicted to these conspiracy theories. Yes, and, and what we'll talk about continually throughout these episodes in regards to addiction is addiction is, addic- is an addiction because, as we talked about, Satan provides lies, right, mm-hmm. kind of partial truths or this is something that partially fills, right, just enough to get, keep on bringing you back but not enough to truly satisfy. And that's the idea of conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. For a lot of people, it also fills their need of, well, we'll talk about this later, the need of Christ, the need of God, the need of connection with a higher power and with one another. Yeah. I think, honestly, Katie, the route to, if not all, because I don't know every single addiction on the planet, Anything could essentially become an addiction. Even drinking water can become an addiction, which can be harmful to an extent. But um, I honestly think that it's to some extent the desire to connect 
Um, if you, let's look at the ones you have here on the screen. If you look at each component of those, it's an element of connecting to something that elicits pleasure. Yes, and Crystal, you're, you're jumping ahead of us because that's one of the lies. Sorry, 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 sorry. sorry. No, no, you're fine, you're fine. <laughs> um, but definitely one of those lies that we'll cover later has to talk about, well, what's the actual root of addiction? Okay, so we had the first lie, Crystal. Um, mm-hmm. Addictions are only drugs. Yes. Mm-hmm. So addictions are only drugs. Okay, what was the second line? Addictions are only harmful. Okay. And just quickly, what was the truth to that? No, they could also be considered helpful because if you think about it, there's a reason why you use them in the first place. Exactly. And then the third line? They're only helpful. So now the complete opposite of that, which um, we could hear people say, oh, they take my problems away. They numb me. They help me be more social, etc." cetera. Um, but no, they are very harmful and they only add to your problems. Yes. And we spend a lot of time here, right? talking about how it negatively impacts our physical health, our emotional health, and, and so forth, including our spiritual health and our yes. mm-hmm. So let's jump into where we picked off. I picked, let's pick up where we left off. There we go. <laughs> Number four, Chriselle, what is the fourth lie? The fourth lie? I need them. Okay. And why is that? Well, let's, let's talk about what are some of those, like, how do people phrase that often when they say, I need them? Um, I've heard individuals say it helps me function. If it weren't for this drug, I wouldn't have the energy to go throughout the whole day to clean my home, to be socially interactive, to be okay. able to function at work. So it also depends on the type of drug that they're using. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've heard that as well. What are other things you've heard? Um, so, for example, this one's very, very common with marijuana and cannabis use, right? I mm. need to manage my anxiety. Right? Mm. I need it to relax. Um, there are people who say, I'm a better person. Right? Mm. I'm not as angry or irritable to my family. I don't lash out as much. Mm. But I remember as a young clinician, I remember first hearing that and I was like, you know, what's my what's my argument against that? If it's yeah. really helping them, right? Mm. They say I need it. So this is different from the help. This is saying I need it. Mm. Now, let's talk about for a second, Chriselle, need versus want. How do how do we? Why is that important to talk about? It's important to talk about because I think most oftentimes when it comes to addiction. We confuse that. And I think just, just not just addiction, I'll, I'll be a little bit more general. I think just in general with life, <laughs> um, we can confuse needs with wants and can get us into a lot of trouble. But obviously, we're not talking about those outside stuff. So going back to addiction, it's important because they're different. There is a clear difference between what I need and what I want. So I'm assuming someone's thinking at this moment, well, then what's the difference? <laughs> yeah. So, Katie, what would you say is the difference? Well, when I talk to my clients about this, I, I just start asking them questions like, would you, would you die without it? Mm. So, I need food, mm-hmm. right? Will I die without food? Yes, eventually. Mm. Now, there could be the addiction of overeating, right? Mm-hmm. Do you need that much food? No. Mm, no. 
oh, I need sex. Will you die if you don't have sex? No. No. Even so, for example, with masturbation, some will say, oh, I need to, like like my body has to. No, there are many, many people, healthy individuals who don't, right? Mm -hmm. So am I going to die without it? That's kind of an assessment that you can do, right? Water, I need water. Yeah, so I would imagine... (laughs) Um, I just thinking about sitting in front of a patient, right? And then the way that they would come back, right, Katie, they're very creative, which I completely thank them for being authentic with us. (laughs) Yes, right. So I would imagine that they would come back and they would say something of the sort. Well, no, I do need them. Because if I don't have it, then um, I could die. I don't know if you've heard that from an individual, where they have already gotten to the point that they've they're so addicted to a particular drug that if they were to completely get off of it, that they would die. Therefore, they need it. So I want to I say that because mm-hmm. some individuals may come and say, oh, that's a need. Mm-hmm. What happens is that initially the first introduction to any addiction is essentially a want. Mm-hmm. But then, yes, the chemical balances that happen in the brain can get it to the point where you trick yourself to thinking you need it. But you, it's important to remind yourself that you don't need it. It's still a want. Even though chemically in your brain, in your body, it, it confuses that. Yes, good clarification, Crystal, because technically there are some drugs, um, as, well, not the behavioral addiction, the drugs. The drugs. That yes. cause a physical dependence. Mm-hmm. So that is true. And I'm glad you bring that up because you do have to be careful mm-hmm. in, during the withdrawal phase. Mm-hmm. And I like how you highlighted, Christelle, the way that addiction works. The addiction, what it really does is creates a, a want, turns a want to a, a need mm-hmm. where you feel like you have to have it. And mm-hmm. there's the actual dependency. But then also if you think about what we mentioned last week, the in a toxic relationship, right? Then you feel like you need that person, that husband or that spouse or that wife, right? Mm -hmm. In order to survive. And that's why it's important to reframe your thoughts, as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. to recognize it's a want and not a need. Now, one of the things I mentioned to my clients the most is when they say, I need it to function. I need it to manage my anxiety. And, And they say, you know, it works and I tell them it does work going back to it's helpful there are benefits Mm -hmm. one of the the negative consequences that I see the most when it comes to mental health specifically is external versus internal coping Mm -hmm. what I mean by that is they become dependent on something external Mm -hmm. to mask symptoms not to address and target and Mm -hmm. actually address the root cause. And so if you think about it, an external thing is not really addressing the root problem instead of being motivated to learn how to internally cope, which is, oh, I can manage this on my own. And it's addressing the root of the problem. So twofold there, both external, internal, and masking like self-medicating or addressing the root problems. And we know that the more that we don't address a problem, we repress it and suppress. 
you froze yourself. So I'll keep on talking until you come back on yourself, but you're correct about repressing. And what happens is we know that with avoidance, for example, is we, the more that we avoid, the more that it keeps the problem there and the more that it continues on. So let's wait a few to see if Chriselle comes back on. I was hoping that she'd come, on, come, come back on by now. Chriselle, if you can hear me. Okay, are you back, Chriselle? Yeah, sorry. My internet lately has been a little bit stubborn. <laughs> Fine, I, I started speaking a little bit to fill in the space. You but you know where I was going with that, right? You're talking about repressing. Yes, and so what we don't recognize, I think a lot of people don't realize and recognize is when we suppress and repress our whatever emotional thing that we're going through and then we fill it in with addictions, we're only making the problem worse. So the more that you mask a problem, just because I do this and I no longer see my finger here, doesn't mean that my finger no longer exists, <laughs> right? So that's just the common logic of it. Yes, and so it's important to remove the substance in order to recognize you need to deal with the root cause. Right? Even though it's hard, we recognize it's hard. Yes, of but course. it will be easier to go through it than to postpone the struggle. Yes. If you think about like, for example, trauma, um, when it happens, you naturally will recover if you address it. Mm -hmm. They say even within one month, like our, we are so resilient, but the moment that we don't think we're resilient enough to deal with it, we'll reach out for something external. Yeah. Even for example, love or relationships. I know so many people, I need him to soothe me. The moment he hugs me, oh, then I cry. Or the moment that it's important to learn how to self-soothe, how to mm -hmm. deal with it on your own, right? Because if I hope I'm not bursting any bubbles, there's gonna, always going to be stressors in life, always. And so if you don't learn how to deal with them, something else is going to happen and it's going to pile and pile and pile. So it's not a need, it's a want, right? Um, that's the, the fourth one. What about number five, Purcell? Well, I just have a little. I'm totally in control. Mm. Just a little bit. Yeah, usually when I hear someone say that, I think what you just said told me you're not in control. <laughs> well, to be, to be fair, I think there are some people you know, let's start with just a little bit. And that they really are in control. Mm. Whenever clients tell me, well, it's just a little bit. And I, I believe them, some of them, mm. right? People tend to um, under-report their substance use. Mm. But there are times where, okay, yeah. But I tell them this. Nobody chooses to be an alcoholic. They don't start drinking saying, I'm going to become an alcoholic. No, yeah. It starts with a little bit. And that's why last last episode we touched on where some of these lies come from. Comes from father of all lies. We can either, you know, choose God who speaks only the truth, or we can choose the enemy, 
Satan, who is the father of all lies. And one of the lies he sells, this is a really, really common one, just a little bit. Yeah. That starts with, so what have you noticed with some clients that you, that have several addictions um, when it comes to like how it started? Is there any patterns or themes? Uh, I mean, yes, everyone's different, but in terms of patterns and themes, it's introduced at a young age for the most part. Yes. Um, when you don't have the ability to reason. Yes, because your frontal lobe is underdeveloped. It fully okay. develops. Typically. It fully age. develops. Say that again? What age typically are drugs, like, do people become addicted? Um, 14. Yeah, around there, right? Mm-hmm. You can see really the teenage years. That's mm-hmm. when it gets introduced, and that's where, so when you look at the history of um, those who struggle with addictions, it starts that young. Yeah, and it could be for many other reasons in terms of, um, you know, if you take a look at the developmental stages of life, usually around 14 years of age, they're beginning to identify who they are as a person. Um, am I an adult? Am I not an adult? And then based on how the environment responds to that, sometimes they cope by turning to drugs. So that's sometimes that's then other times it's just peer pressure where you, another kid who was introduced from the, some other, and that just kind of <laughs> starts to contaminate all those kids around them. Mm-hmm. But yes, the frontal lobe is fully developed. Correct me, Katie, if I'm wrong, around 24, 25, right? Yeah, so it, it varies, but um, it could be even as late as late 20s. Yeah. And, you know, so there's a statistic that says more than 90% of people who have an addiction, 90% started to drink or use drugs before they were 18. So very, Satan gets them young. Right. Mm-hmm. And one of the other patterns I've seen um, with my clients and across different settings is that many of them started with marijuana. The so it's, there's no surprise that it's referred to a gate, as a gateway drug. Right. Mm-hmm. Because for many, oh, it's, it's harmless or um, especially in high school, you start with uh, marijuana and you start you start the addiction process of seeking pleasure right of utilizing it to cope mm-hmm. I hear that a lot with my clients of when I was young I got was stressed so I used it and so you start depending on other things instead of yourself early on whereas this is the age actually to learn you're like you mentioned you're building your identity you're building who you are you're building your resources your toolbox of coping skills and instead you're utilizing substances. Um, and again, no one chooses to be an addict. It starts young. Um, and what's also interesting is when we talk about kind of you're in control just a little bit, one of the things I find fascinating about marijuana use is that it's very unpredictable how much THC, you know, the, the active ingredient um, in um, cannabis is like it's hard to measure and like even when I ask my clients how much right and they're like oh, well, a couple of bowls or a couple of joints right but even if you were to ask well how much THC in, in those different various forms 
um, and in other drugs, sometimes if they're mixed, sometimes at parties and other things, there are many stories of individuals who had overdoses or um, had certain experiences because they thought they had one drug, but they were given something else, right? The enemy with his lies. Mm-hmm. So here's a stat for people who love stats, including myself. Uh, the average batch of marijuana, so first looking at 1990, contained less than 4% of THC, but that percentage has since risen to over 12%. And so it's increasing, the amount of THC is increasing. The average batch of marijuana has become more powerful. And we see that um, in various drugs, right? People are altering it in different forms to make it more potent. Now, Chriselle, you had you wanted to talk about this. Um, so, part of the lie of just a little bit or you're in control is, and what we just saw with marijuana, of over time, mm-hmm. there's more and more potent forms. There's more and more active ingredients, and there's this lie of oh, well, just a little bit. What's fascinating is if you look at the history of these different drugs and how they become more socially acceptable. I don't know if you wanna choose a specific drug or addiction and, and highlight kind of the history of it. Well, I mean, before we go back into history, just kind of look at what we're currently going through. Um, marijuana's become legalized and so the accessibility to it, even if you don't have that medical card is pretty scary. <laughs> I know that I work with sometimes adolescents that they have access to these drugs because it's just so readily available everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, So before marijuana was not acceptable, it was even shamed upon to anyone who would consume it. Mm -hmm. But now it's, you see it down the street, you see the stores that sell them and that leaf, the marijuana leaf is so commonly seen now. I mean, prior to becoming legalized, I personally didn't even know what it looked like. And now it's very, I didn't know what it smelled like. <laughs> and then now it's like, that's marijuana. That's marijuana. Anywhere you go. Anywhere you go. Yeah. So also, I don't know, if Katie, if you've heard of this, but in Oregon, it became the first state to decriminalize hard drugs such as cocaine. Mm-hmm. That, that just blows my yeah. mind. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't understand how that could even be passed. <laughs> how is that even acceptable? So once again, the things we're going through now, if I were to rewind and go back in history and share with them, look, this is what we're going through right now. I don't think, I don't think they'd believe me. I don't think they would. Um, you can look at the history of caffeine. Yes, caffeine is a drug, just in case you didn't know. <laughs> uh, it's pretty acceptable drug. I mean, it's in our sodas. It's in chocolate. It's in our teas that we drink. It's in coffee, which is uh, something that I think Americans, I'm not going to speak for those outside of our country, but in America, it's a pretty, you, you have a pretty good business if you're selling coffee because it's addictive. Mm-hmm. Right, Katie? So yeah. the history of coffee and caffeine, I mean, there's many different sources that I read, but essentially it became popular in Europe in the 17th century. And then by the 18th century, plantations had been established in, the, in Indonesia and the West Indies. And by the 20th century, it became the biggest cash crop on earth. Wow. Mm-hmm. 
And I mean, currently it's still making a lot of money. And if you don't know the, understand how caffeine affects you, I'm not going to go into it because it's a lot of material, but I encourage you to look it up. If you are, if, if you do have the tendency to be drawn towards coffee and you've never really thought about caffeine as something that is a drug, um, there's a reason why you like coffee so much. <laughs> it's not that coffee is amazing because if you really know about it, if you just take the cacao bean or however they say it, it's white. And if you put it straight to your mouth, it tastes so bad. I haven't personally tasted it, but I've seen through documentaries. You have, Katie? Uh-huh. Okay, so why don't you speak of it? <laughs> First-hand experience. Yeah. And then, you know, it's interesting. It, it's a natural pesticide. Yes, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. And here we are. Mm. <laughs> and I was, I was having a conversation with um, a friend of mine who's a mental health therapy trainee student and we were talking about this um, phenomenon of how caffeine is so accepted now and we were both talking about our own personal experiences Mm -hmm. so I was raised to not drink caffeine right it was viewed at the time of when I was young as a drug and so you don't you don't drink it but then later on right with culture and society I started drinking it and Unfortunately, I have the taste buds that just really, really like coffee and dark flavors and pepper and all these things. And I used to tell myself, especially in college, I remember trying to do all-nighters and, and I'd drink caffeine and I'd fall asleep. I was like, caffeine doesn't affect me. That's mm-hmm. what I would say. And my, my friend was saying, oh, yeah, I used to say that all the time. Both of us had the experience where we went off of coffee, we went off of caffeine, And then for her, it was she accidentally ordered something with caffeine. They didn't know it had caffeine. And what do you think happened? Oh. Couldn't sleep. Same thing happened to me. It's like, caffeine doesn't affect me. You remember, Chriselle, you know this because you're my sister. I'm like, oh, it doesn't really affect me. And, you know, other people in our family were like, oh, you would say, oh, I would stay up all night but I drank it so much not not so frequently but when I did I enjoyed it and I said it didn't affect me now you give me caffeine it does right because I've been completely clean and sober right yeah so that's also part of the deception of you know it's so socially accepted and we're telling ourselves it doesn't affect us but it doesn't we shared last time of how it can even lead to death now, what about pornography? I remember you bringing this up in college, and I never heard about it, but um, do you want to talk a little bit about like kind of the evolution of pornography? Yes, and so it's interesting because the, the place that we are at currently in our society when it comes to sexuality is just completely far. <laughs> Some people will say progress. I don't see it as progress. I see it as degradation. Um, from what was initially considered pornography. Um, So if you look into the history of it, essentially women used to dress covering from here all the way down. They couldn't even show their ankles. And so pornography at that point in time would be as play cards. And the play cards would have a picture of a woman that she would essentially just be lifting up her skirt, possibly a little bit above her knee. And that in itself would stimulate a man because you, just, you would never see that unless you were, I mean, married, right? 
now, this is not to shame anyone or to judge anyone, okay? But just to share what I see out there, and I'm sure everyone sees this. When you go to the stores, a lot of the midriff is not covered, the chest is not covered, the backside is not covered. So we've gone from something so, some people would call it ridiculous, but it's not to what we're currently dressing like. Yes, and Michelle, um, what's interesting is when I was reading some of the notes that you mentioned, it says that when immigration increased, right, and there were mixing of different countries and different belief systems, and then that's where some of those influences started to take place of, oh, well, no, sexual immorality is okay, and, you know, seeing these things. And so it started slowly, right, uh-huh. becoming more and more acceptable. Yes, it says here, as trade between countries increased and more people immigrated from countries that were less tyrannical and more relaxed attitudes towards human sexuality, the amount of available um, visual pornography began to increase. Yeah, so puritanical, right? Mm-hmm. Puritanical. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, and you don't need to look into history to see this, right? Um, I remember in college when you were taking a course on movies and learning about movies, mm-hmm. you would comment on how, like, oh, Katie, like, do you know that, you know, the first time they showed a toilet flushing on, on a movie screen, that that was scandalous, right? Because mm-hmm. that's indecent. Mm-hmm. And you can think about also in regards to swimsuits, how swimsuits used to be and how swimsuits are. And when I was mentioning about college, um, so... For those of you who don't know, Crystal, you have a, a good way of finding like interesting um, information, intriguing information about human behavior. So I remember you, you came and you were like, oh, there's this video that you watched about the impact of um, seeing women in bikinis on the, on the man's brain. You want to remember that? Do you want to share that? I don't know if you remember. It was years ago. I don't remember the exact impact. I was so impacted. <laughs> I don't remember um, the exact impact, but what I do remember is this. And if you want to add to it based on what you remember, I mentioned to you, um, the evolution, the history of a bikini, it's so widely accepted today, but when it initially was introduced, there was a designer who wanted to, to show it off and have it part of the runway, the catwalk. And um, back then a model was considered to be very, um, elegant. She was considered to be sophisticated, just a, a very well put together woman compared to what models are considered today. And so this person wanted, the designer wanted a model to display the bikini. Every single model said no. It was unacceptable that they would not allow their career, their reputation to be damaged by wearing the bikini on the catwalk. Mm-hmm. But one woman, the only one he was able to find to do it was actually a prostitute. And she was the only one who was willing to do it. So when I personally watched that, I was like, oh, wow. Like, and I'm over here wearing a bikini when back then it was considered to be, I mean, what's the word, Katie? I don't know. How, what's that word to describe a bikini? A scandalous? I don't know. Yeah. But anyways, there is more, there is more information. I don't know if you remember Katie, but yes, the way that when a man sees a woman in a bikini, it's almost as if she's nude. Yeah. So um, what I remember you sharing was that 
the the way that the brain was activated was the same way as a man seeing a woman in lingerie. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so we're not saying we're not against, you know, bikinis and all these things. This is not against the bikini no, no. movement. It's this idea that, again, history has made nudity and other things more and more acceptable to the point where even, and the, oh, let me try to remember the phrase here. Um, but essentially as human beings, we're also very stimulated by novelty. So what happens is when you expose too much, what happens, and you see this in the pornography industry, you have to have more and more novelty. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes um, more and more harsh forms of pornography. So before it was maybe just between man and female, right? Male and female. And then it escalates further and further to the point where, and this is very commonly known, that there are, um, this part of human trafficking and it's a whole drug industry and mm. um, child abuse and sexual abuse and just this really, it, it, it's, it's a horrible industry, right? And just remember, going back to our main point, which is what's the lie? Just a little bit, right? And so we're going back to the history of everything. And now it was just a little bit before, but we're fully exposed now that we don't recognize that these little bit of introductions to caffeine, little bit of introductions to seeing a woman in a bikini, all of this can lead to an addiction, such as pornography, such as an addiction to coffee, right? Um, And it's crazy because... If you look at the numbers in terms of pornography, it says here 40 million American people regularly visit porn sites. Mm-hmm. 40 million. About 200,000 Americans are classified as porn addicts. It's yes. sad. It's really sad. But the society we're living in, is, it's just a little bit. It's just a commercial. But you're opening your eyes to see just a little bit. Going back to that gateway drug, it's just a little bit. It just I helps me. And when you're trying to overcome, I had so many clients who say, okay, when they say, oh, you know, I relapse. And I say, okay, let, let's kind of go back. Let's see where it started. And it often starts with just a little bit. Oh, it's not that bad, right? Mm-hmm. I can control myself this time, right? So um, for the sake of time, I know, I know we need to continue. We could stay here for a very long time. But yeah. the next lie is number six. The root of addiction is either hereditary or from a messed up childhood. Mm. And Crystal, you started already answering this early on, right? That the root of addiction is actually a lack of connection and a sense of emptiness, right? You don't have to have that messed up childhood. We're going to talk about two biblical stories later on where they had a perfect upbringing. They had a perfect world. And yet... It comes from this dissatisfaction, emptiness, right? And that you're trying to fill that emptiness with something, right? Something that doesn't actually fulfill. Mm. And I just want to quickly, I was talking about this with a client and we brought up this um, parable in the Bible, Luke chapter 11. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to go into it in depth, but they brought it up and I was like, that is so perfect. That is so true. Luke chapter 11 um, verses 24 to 26 is this parable that's often not talked about. There are some parables that are very popular, um, but this one says, you know, talks about when an unclean spirit goes out from a man, so he leaves, right? This unclean spirit, 
he goes through dry places seeking rest, but he doesn't find any. So he says, I will return to my house from which I came. So he goes back to this man and it says he finds it swept and put in order. Now, Matthew adds a detail to this. He doesn't only says he finds it swept and put in order, Matthew chapter 12, or I believe. But he says he finds it empty, swept, and kept in order. And then it says what happens? He goes and takes with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. This is talking about when it comes to relapse, for example, we, we stopped the addiction, but we're still empty. We didn't fill it. This man wasn't filled with Christ. And so what happens is the addiction comes back, and the addiction comes back stronger and worse than, it, than when it stopped. So this is talking about the root of addiction is emptiness, is a lack of connection. This talking about the lack of filling yourself with Christ. If you just stop a bad behavior, that's nice and dandy, but you're going to be empty, right? That's not the root. And that happens a lot. You'll see it with different people is they'll stop one addiction and then they'll, another addiction will just pop up and continue that cycle until they fulfill themselves with connection, both connection with God and true connection with people. So if someone is watching Katie and they're like, well, then what is the root to my addiction how can they go about exploring that i would do an assessment right of what's your connection with god look like what's your connection look like with those around you is it a superficial connection and i mean we have sometimes superficial connection with god right oh i just read my bible i go to church i pray but do you actually have a deep connection with God? Do you love him? Do you want to spend time with him? Right? When you read his word, is it like, oh God, thank you. And sometimes, you know, we we have in relationship, we have ups and downs. But overall, are we being connected? Are we striving to be connected to God and then with relationships? I know a lot of people who have not been in the church or have been raised in a church setting. It's, it's hard. It's like, who are my friends? And they're looking for friends and connection. Visit a local church, get connected, right? And connection's not easy, so it doesn't mean you have to connect with someone right away. It takes time, it takes effort, it takes consistency. But we need connection. That's why if you think about um, the idea behind a sponsor, a sponsor is not helping you right away. It's not running over to your house and removing all the, the alcohol or the, the drug. The idea is behind the idea behind the sponsor is connection. They say, if you are struggling with an urge, call someone, mm-hmm. talk to somebody, right? National suicide hotline number. If you have the urge, because we, you know suicidal thoughts could be an addiction too, addicted to that thought and that escape and avoidance. Call someone, talk to somebody. Right? Prayer is calling God connecting with God. God then speaks back to us in his word. Mm-hmm. So if it's a lack of connection, then, and we'll talk in future episodes too about how to address that, but part of overcoming, and we'll talk about actually a little later on today, um, is connection. But Christelle, number seven, 
And this is our last one. We're going to spend some time here. So what's the last lie? I think this lie is something that can ring in our ears over and over again if we're struggling with an addiction and make us feel like it's just we can't overcome, which is it's who you are. This is just you. And I, I do know that like alcoholic anonymous, the meetings, when you attend them, I've attended a couple, not for personal reasons, but for my, my education, they required us to go and attend a couple of them. And one of the common statements of when they, whenever they address something or they say something in the group, they say, hi, I'm, I'm an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they have the reasons for doing so. But if you think about that statement, I'm an alcoholic, essentially, you're labeling yourself cognitive distortion, right, Katie? Yeah. And you're labeling your identity. But if you're labeling your identity, essentially, you're saying, well, this is who I am. But all of who I am. This is all of who I am, yes. But you do know that there's, you are someone outside of your addiction. Mm-hmm. You know, That's, and. So just say that again, because I think somebody watching needs to hear that. You are someone outside of your addiction. You're more than your addiction. Yeah. That's why in medical professions, they change, they, they're educating um, providers to no longer say, diabetic, right? Mm-hmm. You have diabetes. No longer you're a schizophrenic, but you have schizophrenia. Struggling. You're more than your diabetes. You're more than your schizophrenia. You're more than the alcoholism. You're more than fill in the blank, right? Oh, I'm a porn addict. No, no. You are addicted to porn. Mm-hmm. You are more than just your addiction. Mm-hmm. And Satan, is another lie, wants you to believe that you are just your addiction and you are not you are more than your addiction and that itself I think owning that helps you to to overcome am I still there Katie yes yes okay I'm I'm talking because you (laughs) oh I froze okay I was just saying that you know the enemy Satan when he makes you think that it's who you are then the next thought usually is, I guess I can't change. Exactly. Yeah. But you can, because that's a lie. Mm -hmm. That's a fiction of addictions and don't believe it. It's not true. So, Crystal, we wanted to end with two two biblical accounts of two individuals, um, well, technically three, um, one a parable and and the other a real-life account. and as an example of summarizing the various lies, mm-hmm. as well as recognizing how they overcame, right? Because you can overcome. So this episode, concluding this episode, will focus on how these individuals struggled with addiction and then kind of got out of it, right? Overcame. Mm-hmm. And then in the future episode, we'll cover individuals of how we can prevent falling into addiction, right? Because that's important too. Mm-hmm. So, so what, which stories are we going to be turning to? And maybe you can turn to one and I can turn to the other because we're going to compare and contrast and see what we can learn from both of them. Okay, so we're going to be comparing the story of Adam and Eve when they were in the garden and they had the temptation, right? Mm-hmm. And then the prodigal son, and you're like, what does the prodigal son have to do with addiction? 
Well, when Katie shared this with me, I was like, of course it does. <laughs> Of course it does. So in terms of where you can find it in your Bible, you can find the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. And then Adam and Eve, I believe is in Genesis chapter, what is it, 3, Katie? Yes, 3. Okay. So mm -hmm. what we'll do is perhaps, Crystal, you can summarize Genesis chapter 3. Just mm -hmm highlights and then I'll summarize Luke 15 and then we'll highlight how they're similar and how they're different and I'll just say this this I didn't recognize the power of these two combined I had always recognized the power separately and God is so amazing because he brought this to our attention what just last night I believe right so mm -hmm. praise God for, for that and um, yes Chris also if you could summarize Genesis chapter 3 so there's a serpent, the enemy, and there's Eve in the Garden of Eden. And he says to her, has God indeed said that you should not eat of every tree of the garden? And so she responds to the servant and she says, well, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent comes to the woman and he responds. He says, well, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing God and evil. So then as a result of this interaction between her and the serpent and her believing what the enemy had said, she takes the fruit. It was pleasant to the eyes. Let me read that verse particular because I think it's very crucial. Verse six, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and the tree desirable to make one wise, she took up its fruit and she ate. Then she gave it to Adam. He also took. And as a result, it says in verse 7, both of their eyes were opened. And they knew that they were naked. So all of a sudden it was like, oh, we're exposed. Etc. So they were exposed. And then what happened? Just briefly. Oh, I didn't. Okay. Um, and so they were exposed. And then as a consequence... Well, not quite yet. Hold on. So they were exposed and then they heard God saying, where are you? Where are you? Because they had hidden from God. Mm -hmm. And they had attempts to make clothing for themselves out of fig leaves. And then God, after asking, where are you? And Adam says, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and therefore I hid myself. And then God says, well, who told you that you were naked? Like, what's ha What happened here? And have I not... Have you eaten from the tree, which I told you not to eat of? Mm -hmm. Then, sadly enough, um, Adam blames Eve. Oh, it's the woman that you gave me that gave me the fruit, and then I took and I ate. And then as a consequence, um, they were taken out of the Garden of Eden. Okay. So essentially, um, what's happening here is Eve has an addiction of food, right? Um, Falls, tempted by this food, eats mm -hmm. it, then experiences these different elements of shame and guilt, mm -hmm. and also then tempts Adam to eat with her, and then they have the consequences of addiction. So we'll go through what that looks like specifically as we compare to Luke 15. Now, for Luke 5th, chapter 15, I'll just quickly summarize. Um, it talks about the prodigal son, right? It's a parable. Jesus is telling a story, but a story to illustrate. Um, a point 
And essentially, there's this young man, right, tells his father, Father, give me my inheritance. Before you're dead, give it to me now. And he goes and he lives a prodigal life, which prodigal means kind of wayward life, right? So um, it's not explicitly said, but meaningless life, indulgent, a lot of pleasure-seeking, uncontrolled, kind of just living life, you know, the way that he wants with a lot of pleasure, pleasure seeking. Right? Mm-hmm. And he goes, and as you can imagine, doesn't last very long, right? Addictions don't last very long. They're not very happy all the time. And then he decides, you know, I, I want to go back. He goes back, father welcomes him, and he's restored to the house. But there's a lot more beauty in it that we're going to go through. So let's start from the top, okay? And if you see any comparisons and contrasts that you want to add to, feel free and um, you can even comment on, on YouTube as well. So we're going to kind of go through a layout of before the addiction, identifying the root of the addiction, during the addiction, mm-hmm. after the addiction, and then what was the end result, the conclusion. Okay. So before the addiction, what do we notice about both stories, Priscilla? What do we notice about their lives? So they had good lives. I mean, I would say Adam and Eve, prodigal son was already in a world of sin, but Adam and Eve had a perfect life. Yes. Perfect life. Tell me more. Beautiful garden. Beautiful garden, no pain, no experience of suffering. They, God walked with them. Um, mm-hmm. They were fully vulnerable. I mean, literally naked, fully vulnerable, no shame. Imagine living in a world like that. That's amazing. You said vulnerable as in we might think about it from a negative perspective, but you're saying vulnerable is like, they're just, just fully authentically themselves. Mm -hmm. That's amazing to be able to have that type of life. Yeah. So perfect home. Right. And you mentioned, you know, even God walking with them. And then for the prodigal son, wait, what type of home was he in? He was in a good home. He had a father who had wealth. He had a farm that there was a job there for him. There's even an inheritance. Therefore, he was asking for it. Um, He had a good home. And we see later on how the father responds. It's a loving home, Mm. too. So both of these individuals, and that was one of our misconceptions, right? That, oh, it has to be from a messed up childhood. No, it's, well, I'm going to get ahead of myself. (laughs) I'm talking about what's the root of it. But you could even be in a perfect environment mm-hmm. and still listen to the lie. So what were, what were the lies in these stories for self? For, for Eve, what was the lie? Well, essentially, if you were to summarize that lie, is God is withholding something from you. He's not allowing you to fully experience life. Yes. So he was saying, you know, oh, God knows that when your eyes, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll know good and evil. You'll be like God. Now, that's interesting because we already know that Adam and Eve were made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. And so Satan is tempting her to believe that God is withholding, as you mentioned yourself, withholding something, that there's something more, right? So creating this dissatisfaction in her life she wanted more and that happens a lot with women where women want more right and they're not satisfied with what god has given them now what about the prodigal son chrysal what was the lie that he believed and we don't see 
an explicit account of Satan mm-hmm. coming to him, but we can see by the wording of the story that he was also dissatisfied. What did what what lie did he believe or that he wanted? What were, what was he seeking after? That there was more to life that his father was withholding from him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And therefore he was desiring more. Yes, and both pleasure seeking. Mm-hmm. Eve's pleasure seeking of food, right? And him's pleasure seeking of sex, drugs, money, wealth, greed, right? And so forth. So we can already just pause here and say, you know, in your own life, for those who are watching, including for ourselves, is there any dissatisfaction in your life? Are you believing any lie that there's something missing from your life? Mm-hmm. That God is somehow withholding good things from you? Right. Anything that you want to add, Crystal, before we continue? Yeah, I, I was going to say, you know, I think that I've come across patients who they've never had an introduction to God. The concept of God has not been introduced to them, but the enemy still works in their lives, right? The enemy is still trying to get them not to ever have any desire to know God. So they have these, all these distractions, all these lies thrown at them. And we know that all of that is not going to fill you. That's why you continue to say, I'm stuck. I have depression. I have anxiety. I'm not satisfied with life. I'm addicted to all these drugs. And yes, they, they're momentarily pleasurable, but ultimately they're not doing it. Yes. I need something. I need something. Mm-hmm. And that's God. And those who might say, I have been introduced to him and I don't believe in him. Mm. It's often because you've been believing lies about who he is. You have a misunderstanding of God. Yeah. One of the names of Satan, like his or- the original w- word that's used for his name, is what we say translated as, well, Diablos, mudslinger, which means he's like throwing mud at God's character, meaning one of his biggest, um, his ploys, like his, his biggest um, strategies that he uses most frequently is to paint God in a picture that not it's not who God is. Katie, if you look at the story of Adam and Eve, when when there are behaviors, there's a root problem that's leading to that behavior. So yes, the lie is that God is withholding, but if you look deeper, if she truly understood that God in his character would never withhold anything from her because he has given her everything, she would have stepped back, I think. I mean, I wasn't there and say, God wouldn't do that. God has given me everything. I know my God. What you're saying to me is a lie. Crystal, and that match, that's perfect with Psalms 84:11 that says, right? God, for no good thing will he withhold from those mm. who love him, right? Amen. From those who walk uprightly. Mm. If you know really who God is and you know that other verses, it says if parents can give good gifts to their children, how much more does your father in heaven want to give you good things? And this is also something to be mindful of, Katie. I think that the enemy can also lie to you that you know him, that you don't need to read the word. You know him. I have a good relationship with God. But the honest truth is we need to continue to discover God because you will never know him fully. So that in itself is also a lie. So we need to continue to seek his word, to be able to, as you just said, to draw from his word, his promises, so that when these lies come, and they will come because they come to all of us. We're able to say, 
no, I don't think so, because this is the God that I know and the God that I serve. So we see that his, his strategy is to separate us from God, right? Mm-hmm. Um, through food, through money, through sex, through pleasure, right? And false pleasure, because God wants to give us pleasure. He says, yeah, I want to give you life and life abundant. But it's false pleasure, pleasure that doesn't truly satisfy. And then we answered also that what's the root of addiction, as we mentioned before? A lack of connection. Lack emptiness. of connection and relationship, right? And I like that you mentioned, yourself. Adam and Eve lived in a perfect environment. And so you could say, oh, they knew God. No, relationship is always growing. So are you investing in your relationship mm-hmm. ongoingly? Now, during the addiction, right? So she eats the fruit. The prodigal son goes and lives his life, you know, lavishly. And what do we notice? That now this is kind of a contrast. What happens for Adam and Eve in regards to consequences? Do they receive the consequences immediately of their addiction? Um, in terms of them being kicked out of the Garden of Eden or fully recognizing with shame that they were exposed? So that's, it's kind of like a, a yes and no, right? So <laughs> some consequences that they recognize their nakedness, but not the severe consequences until later on when they get kicked out kicked out more so of they chose to leave and katie you even see generational consequences not saying that you know sins go on through generations but the consequences of the choices that we make they do continue to go through generations yes now with the prodigal son it was a little different he received a lot of the consequences in the beginning right as um it says let me just read this um, it says, not many days after, um, so he went to journey, and it says, there he wasted his possessions with prodigal living. Verse 14, Luke chapter 15, but when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. So he started recognizing the consequences early on. Mm. Now, both received consequences, but Adam and Eve a little bit more see, severe consequences later on than the particle sun earlier on. So that could be a difference. And sometimes, you know, Satan you know, kind of withholds the consequences and continue in addiction. Um, mm-hmm. You sense them right away. Um, but both cases, they do receive consequences. That's important to recognize. Yes. Now, what about after the addiction itself? So you mentioned Adam and Eve, their eyes were opened, they were naked, and then there's there's these feelings strongly attached with addiction that we see is classic in Adam and Eve's case and in everybody's lives. What are those feelings? Shame and guilt. Shame and guilt. And why did Satan use these? Because it's like it turns you off and makes you shut down. And it makes you not want to go to God because you're thinking, I'm not worthy. I'm undeserving. I'm dirty. God wouldn't want to, to come near me. And so you, you hide from God. Yeah. So essentially it keeps you stuck in addiction, right? Mm-hmm. Prevents you from going to the solution, which yeah. is God himself in the connection with God. Right? Mm-hmm. Now they hid, right? You said, and they not, they didn't only hide, but they 
try to self-medicate. They try to solve the problem themselves. Instead of going to God, the eternal solution, they try to fix it themselves. What do they try to do? They try to put together an outfit to sew some fig leaves together because they recognize, oh man, I'm, I'm, I'm exposed. I got to cover this. Yes. And so leave the, did God leave that clothing on them? No, we'll see that in a little bit, mm -hmm. but we see here the temptation to self medicate, right? To rely on yourself to fix the problem. Now going to the prodigal son, we also see this. What does he do before he goes to his father's house? How does he try to fix his problem that he had nothing? He went to go eat from the barrel of pig food. Well, I mean, <sighs> he went and he was hungry. Work, right? Yeah, he um, searched for a job. Amazing. And then he was working for the swine. And this is really strong imagery because Jews would not mm. touch wine, right? So the fact that he's working with swine is he tried his best to not go to his father, right? He tried his best to try to self-medicate, fix it himself. Mm. But often when we try to fix it ourselves, it's poor fig leaves and poor swine, dirty swine. Mm. And if you think about it, when we try that, we make it worse. We get dirtier, right? Mm. Now, not only does it result in shame and guilt and running away from God, our solution, but we also do this very common thing called the blame. The blame game, yep. Well, immediately when God said, where are you? Why have you hidden from me? Well, the woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit. And then the woman says, well, the serpent. <laughs> so it's blame, blame, blame. <laughs> Blame, blame. Yeah. I can't hear you. Could you say that again, please? Essentially, I mean, essentially, who are they blaming? God. Yeah. You gave me the serpent you made, right? We blame God. God, why did you let me go through this? I've heard people say, God, I'm using substances because I have such a horrible childhood. Like, how did you let that happen? And we know, right? The Bible is very clear. God tempts no one. James chapter 1. Mm -hmm. God tempts no one. The temptation doesn't come from God. It comes from the enemy. The enemy is the one who's the source of your dissatisfaction, of your addiction, of the consequences of addiction the emptiness, right, the, the broken relationships. If you think about how, what happened to the particle son and that he was in want and had nothing, he was broke. Like, think about when you talk to somebody who has lived a life of addiction, my, my marriage was broken, right? My, I was in debt. I lost, lost my, my job. Mm -hmm. My job, I couldn't even maintain a job. I it wasn't God. Mm. Although, you know, we blame God for it, but we don't go to him for the solution. Of course, we're not going to go to the solution if we think he's a problem. Yeah. 
So part of recovering, overcoming, is recognizing that God is not the problem. His father is not the problem. He doesn't believe his father. Mm-hmm. And we see instead of blaming, so Adam and Eve blamed God, what did prodigal son do? What did he finally decide to do? He finally decides to take responsibility. How do we know that? What is it? Do you, are you at For some reason, Kate, I can't hear you too well. No? Do you want me to speak louder? Yes, please. Okay. So for Luke chapter 15, um, how do we know that he took responsibility? What does it say? Can you read um, verse, verses 17, 18, and 19? But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he's acknowledging the sin he committed, the wrong he made, Mm -hmm. and he's not expecting to be put back in the same position that he had when he had left. Yeah. So we see, he says, I've sinned, taking responsibility and not just, oh, well, it was, it was a tiny sin. No, against heaven and earth, full responsibility and before you. Mm-hmm. When, we, when we fall into the temptation of addiction, it causes separation between us and God. And so thank God, I recognize that I've sinned even against you right? And it says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Mm -hmm. Well, he takes full responsibility. Now, what happens next in these stories? We see a difference here. Now, the prodigal son, we said, goes to the father, right? But what what happens in the story of Adam and Eve? That God comes to them. Yes. What does it say? What's the language that it uses? When he's looking for them? Mm-hmm. It says here, he asks, where are you? Well, and, and it says that he's, walk, right? he's walking in the garden. He comes searching for them. Yeah. And I think this is beautiful because together you put these two stories together and sometimes, right, God comes, look, comes to you, and sometimes we go to him. But at the end of the day, whatever it takes to get you back connected with him. Mm. And with the prodigal son, it's yes, he goes to his father. But now let me read for you verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. So he starts coming to his father, but he doesn't do, he doesn't do the full Right? He doesn't do the full um, restoration. It says in verse 20, but when he was still afar off, what happened? Still great way off, his father saw him, had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. So you may take steps, but eventually God is the one who still is coming. He came in the garden to Adam and Eve. He runs when you have, are in addiction and you are saying, I need to go back to God, God runs to you. 
Yeah. And, and if you're having the enemy tell you you're dirty, God wouldn't want you. I mean, clearly look at this. He runs to him, falls on his neck. Just imagine that and kisses him. It doesn't, work. It doesn't matter how bad he smells. It doesn't matter how God wants to embrace him because of that compassion he has. The same for you as well. Don't allow the enemy to speak those words of, of deception to you and for you to, to believe them because they're, they're, they're lies. There's no truth behind it. God's so eager to embrace you, regardless of whatever you've done in this life. Beautiful, Kassan. What's the last step? Okay. In both stories, we see a similar ending. I think it is so beautiful. God clothes them with a robe. So in, with Adam and Eve, he's like, those big leaves aren't going to work. What you're trying to do on your own is not going to work. I need to clothe you. And it says that there's a tunic was made out of animal skin, symbolizing a sacrifice that had to be made, which we know that Jesus is the representation of the land that was made for us. So Jesus essentially takes the, the big ultimate consequence of death that we deserve as a result of addiction. We may have the earthly consequences, but God is like, I will take upon myself. Mm-hmm. Even though it's your choice, mm-hmm. I'm going to bear it. And instead, you can take my robe of righteousness, of meaning what I've, I've lived a perfect life, and I'll give that to you. So you could start a new, completely brand new clothes. Dirty clothes swapped out for brand new clothes. And the prodigal son adds something in addition. Not only does he say, bring my best robe, but what else does he give him? He puts on a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And, and Go ahead. And, and it, furthermore, there's a party that happens. Yes. A celebration that happens, not just an, an embrace and acceptance, but a celebration to signify just how important the son is to his father for everyone to know that he has returned and he's been accepted and embraced. Yeah, what's so beautiful is the son, when he goes and starts actually talking to his father, he repeats the same three things. He says, Father, I've sinned. Mm-hmm no longer worthy and then the third one of what he was going to say make me like one of your hired servants his father interrupts him before he says the third one if you look at repeating mm-hmm. he interrupts him and that's where he gives him the robe gives him the the ring the sandals and that what that symbolizes is even though you deserve to be a servant the father restores him completely as his son as royalty that's what it symbolizes, the, the, the symbol of robe is a symbol of complete forgiveness, of loving grace, right? Uh, the ring is restored identity and value because he was saying, I'm unworthy, I'm no longer worthy. When we have the core beliefs of I'm worthless, it's like, no, you have value. Sandals, renewed purpose and meaning in life. Mm. Did Kath, you mentioned the party. So it's not just a connection with God. If you mm. think about it, the party is also then he restores his connection with others. And so God is waiting for us, right, to take the responsibility, and then he runs to us. 
And I just want to briefly um, review. Now, we talked about Adam and Eve and the prodigal son and the steps of addiction. But let's just review quickly of what God's role in addiction is. Hmm. So doing that parallel, right, of the comparison between both stories. The first here is that God allows, the father allows in the story of the prodigal son, choice to exist. And I think that in in itself is a display of love, right? We're not controlled. God allows us to make our choice. Yes. Even if it's choosing addiction, he has to, right? He comes looking for them in the story of Adam and Eve. And then in the story of the prodigal son, he waits daily looks for him and waits with open arms, eager to embrace his son. I just wanted to quickly mention about the prodigal son. Um, for parents, I, I work with you know families that also are struggling with addiction in their family. Mm-hmm. And parents are often, you know, how do I, I don't want to enable. Um, but when it comes to the prodigal son, you know, he asks for his inheritance before he's even dead. Mm-hmm. But we, what we can learn from God in both stories is that God allows, that's what I'm talking about adult children, right? Mm-hmm. Allows them to make those choices. Mm-hmm. And so how do I cope with, you have to allow, you can't shelter them. You can't prevent them from making choices, right? You give them the freedom to choose, right? But also allowing the consequences to take place. Because that's enabling. That's when, oh, well, you know, he, he crashed our car. I'm like, oh, let's get a new car, right? That's enabling, allowing the consequences. Okay, if you crash the car, you have to pay for the damages. Right? So as parents, parents can learn from God in what we're talking about. So you can continue. So. Yes, and so in regards to um, allowing the consequences to exist, in the story of Adam and Eve, God doesn't shelter them from the consequences, doesn't shelter them from fully experiencing the law right? Um, with the prodigal son, he takes the hit, or no, hold on, doesn't also um, shelter them from the consequence. And in regards to what you said, Katie, I think oftentimes when we want to save our children from a consequence, think about that. Essentially, you're choosing to love yourself because it's too unbearable to witness them in their consequence. So you shield them from the consequence. God truly loves us. So he recognizes that there's a consequence, right? Um, at the same time, as the Bible says, he won't allow us to go through something that's unbearable for us. So God is there to be there, but there's also consequences to the choices that we make. Yes. And we have a comment here that says, you know, the son's confession and particle son covers the two parts of the law, sin against God and the sin against humans. And so it's mm-hmm. complete restoration. Yeah. I mean, can you finish us off with the next two points? Yes, and so um, what we see God, the way that God works with them is he asks questions. He says, where are you? God knew what, he had, what they had done. Mm-hmm. And he says, where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Parents, you can learn from this. And others, family members of those who are struggling with addiction, don't shame them. God doesn't shame them. What did you do? Why did he just, where are you? What did, you know, who told you were naked? Ask questions, have empathy. It says that the father had compassion. Try to understand before you condemn, right? Mm-hmm. And don't condemn. 
have grace and mercy. So we see that God asks questions to help accept responsibility. He's basically saying, you have to accept responsibility. And then we see with the particle son, the son accepts responsibility, but God interrupts to the point where he's saying, make me a servant, condemnation. Mm-hmm. The next point is, you know, we see that God takes the hit for major consequence, right? He allows the consequences. When it comes to the major consequence of death, God takes upon himself, both in Adam and Eve and the prodigal son. Like we said, you know, the, the father you know, kills the fatted calf, right? He, sacrifice that is made for on behalf of, of his son and Adam and Eve, God's children. And then we said at the end, God closed them, right? And he closed them to, with his love and with his grace and restores connection between him and Adam and Eve, Eve and between God the Father and the Son. And so to, to conclude, right, there are many lies that we believe from the enemy. Lies of, oh, you don't have an addiction. Lies of, oh, it's helpful. You need it, right? Just a little bit. You're in control. It's who you are, right? Many, many lies, many fictions of addiction. But God's truth has many truths to combat those lies, to help you overcome. And one of the biggest truths to believe is that God is a loving God that is not there to shame you, but to, with open arms, welcome you home to restore you, to fill you so that you're not like that, that man with the unclean spirit that goes away and relapses over and over again. He says, I want to give you a long-term solution. I want to fill you completely. Priscilla, any additional or lasting comments? I mean, it's it's a very sensitive subject. And I know that oftentimes when we struggle with addictions, it's hard to find someone around you that will have compassion, that won't judge you. But just because it's hard doesn't mean that you can't find that person. God works in the lives of many. There are many angels on earth that God utilizes to embrace us, to have that accountability, accountability, to have that connection, to overcome the addiction. And you don't have to go through it alone. God is there always for you. The question is, are you reaching out to him? Because remember, he respects choice, but he also desires to, to connect with you. Crystal, do you mind closing us off with prayer? Yes, let's close with prayer. Dear God in heaven, Lord, thank you so much for giving us truth this evening for revealing to us, Lord, all the deceptions of the enemy. But Lord, help us to believe it, because oftentimes it's hard. We know the, the, the addiction feels so powerful, but we know, Lord, that you're victorious above everything. So help us to turn to you for guidance, for direction, and for strength to overcome these addictions that we struggle with. And Lord, if we are not even aware of an addiction that we may have, I pray that you bring it to our awareness Help us to have the courage to face it and to seek you to overcome it, Lord. And thank you so much, Lord, for loving us. Even though we may have these addictions, we may have these struggles in life, you still love us, Lord, and have compassion upon us when we're so undeserving. So we thank you, Lord, for being a, a God who's loving and compassionate. 
continue to be with this ministry, Lord, and guide us in, in discovering more truth prescriptions. We love you, Lord. Thank you for all that you do for us. In your name we pray. Amen. So, as we always like to end with our truth prescription, the truth prescription for this next week or so, now that you've identified your addictions, identify your pattern of addiction. So using the two stories that we talked about, what was before? What were the lies that you were believing during? What were the consequences of the addiction and then after, right? How did I respond? Did I blame or did I take responsibility? Recognize which, how are you responding to your addictions? And then step two, what steps are you going to take to then overcome? Are you going to take responsibility? Are you going to come to God the Father? Are you going to, instead of, you know, run away, am I going to come to God and admit, right, that I've sinned against you and against others and make and find restoration? And I would say, make it practical, right? What's one way I can connect with God, right? When I'm having an urge, how can I connect with God? How can I reach out to somebody? And I would, I would also want to encourage those maybe who are watching, maybe you don't struggle with addiction, but maybe you know somebody who does. How can I show God in me? How can I be compassionate? How can I be that person that they can turn to, right? How can I be there with open arms, compassionate, not sheltering from consequences, not enabling, but being there with love and unconditional love. And so you have your homework, right? And we always like to end, Chriselle, right? Yes, we, we want to remind you, don't forget to subscribe and to share. And the reason why is these fictions cannot thrive We've got to let the world know that they're not true, right? And so please share. And you might not even be aware that someone may be struggling with an addiction. So please subscribe, follow, and share with a friend. And as Katie said, we always want to mention, don't forget to take your daily dosage of the truth because you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.